Bonjour. Bonjour. I'm Tamsin. I'm Kate. Welcome to the Dame de Paradis, a podcast about the art of lost living in rural France. We're neighbors and friends, and together we explore the gentle and seasonal gifts of a slowed down life in a quiet corner of Gascony. Some years ago, Tamsin showed me an abandoned ruin of a medieval convent in a hamlet called Paravi or Paradis. We joked that our rural French lives were nearly as heavenly and cloistered. The desire to reach out and exchange conversation was born. Welcome to these conversations and cake inspired by that first visit to meet the lost dame de Paradis. Hi, Kate. Hi, Tamsin. So, here we are. The beginning of a very new year. I'm very excited that this is happening. Me too. Um, after many conversations through many years, now we get to share our world with the, with the world. And in a different way, which I think is so exciting for both of us, learning a new way to communicate, to, um, to reach out there. And to work together, that's always really a lot of, of good stuff comes from that. And to put our secret world a little bit more on the map. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the secret society of Les Dames du Paradis, which was our original idea, was to have the secret society of sorts. <laughs> and it's taken us years to get back to it, but here we are. And um, yeah, there's a lot going on in the French countryside that nobody knows about. We could, I think we could create quite a stir being called Les Dames de Paradis. <laughs> <laughs> it sort of sounds like a medieval brothel. <laughs> which yeah, which we're not. Fun. No, we're definitely not. But, but I think what's interesting, whether it's something like a, a club when you're a kid or a clique, or no, not that I was a part of a clique so much, but I love the idea of you have... Like, your cohorts, your people that are, you surround yourself with, that you check in all the time with. Yeah. I think what I've always really loved about our friendship as well is I kind of hadn't realised when I moved to the middle of nowhere that um, I would... You know, I remember the first thing, thinking, God, I can't get Tahini. And, <laughs> and then think... And, and that wasn't so long ago, you know. You've been here 30 years, 10 years ago coffee shops were a bit spit and sawdust and it really was the back and beyond. Even farmers didn't go to coffee shops, really. So it was yeah. all quite basic and simple and I completely underestimated that I missed so much the value of like-minded brainstorming, good friendships, great connections, and then I met you. And that was the beginning of 10 years of friendship. The cook and the yogi, and there we were. So different in what we did, but very similar in how we approached it. Yeah. Which I think was always, has been always the, the basis for our friendship and is one of the things that I love too because there are not many people, as you said, now more in the expat world and in locals there is more of a consciousness of creativity and um, people living maybe remotely working, so they also could be living here in the middle of nowhere doing some really groovy thing. But when I first came, it was all farmers, basically, and I didn't speak enough French to communicate the way I wanted to. So. You were one of the original pioneers, yeah. a, a true adventurer, really. But I, I love the kind of being on the outside, just looking in, too. So I could just look and watch be, and learn, um, but it, it was frustrating and originally to try to express myself creatively with other people because there wasn't other people for me. I couldn't communicate with them. Yeah. So now that's a better part of what we do. But when I came here, I had a sense of security thinking, well, there's Instagram, which had just started, but I had a lot of really lovely friendships on Instagram and I found you through a hashtag. Um... And I had Google Translate, I had Google Maps, and there was the internet. So I could get by without speaking the language, and I could also try and find people around me that were like-minded, whereas when you came here... Yeah, there wasn't any of that sort of um, access to the internet or a telephone. I had landline, 
you know, hooked up down on a string all the way down to the boat. Um, from from the old building that was here, I put a telephone line to the piggery and then ran, you know, just really over the ground uh, telephone line. And and so it was seemed very, very primitive. <laughs> now I have fiber optic cable in this building. I can call wireless to anywhere in the world. And, you know, it's, it's opened up in a very different way. Yeah. So the, the question I'd love to know is... Um, why are you here? What inspired you to take this crazy wild journey into the middle of nowhere and what were you doing? I think that is a question people always are curious about is, you know, why or how did you get here? What, what were the steps? And I always say, that's not really the question because I was just traveling and I was going lots of places, but was why did I stay? Or why did I keep coming back? Because there was a period of a couple of years, I'm living on a canal barge, so my floating home went with me wherever I went. But very quickly within the first year of coming to the southwest of France, I found this piece of property a friend told me about was available for sale. And I wasn't looking to buy a house. There was a ruin of a farmhouse on it and a barn with a hole in the roof and a piggery, which I wasn't going to raise pigs. But there was something about mooring the boat here where I could plug in and get electricity and water and I could live in the countryside away from the city because even though I kind of made the commitment to be on this part of the canal, the Canal de Garonne, which runs from Toulouse to Bordeaux, but I didn't want to be in the city and you needed to be in the city to have access to that electricity and water to make it easier to live on the boat. So when I had the opportunity to buy this piece of property with a ruin on it and the electricity was already hooked up the water was up on the road I could run a hose from there I I bought I bought it because I loved the calm and the quiet and the sort of being in the middle of nature just moored up to some trees and living in the sort of bird fest song a you know aviary that I you know that is this area this at Camont is so beautiful Tell me, because there's something... I mean, we both came here at a similar age, in Mm -hmm. our late 30s. And you hadn't lived in the countryside before, had you? Um, No, not not really. I'd lived in... My last... I'd lived in San Francisco in the middle of a big city. I'd lived in small towns. um, But, uh, no, I couldn't say I was a country woman at all. (laughs) <laughs> I love my high heels and my hats, my chapeau I used to wear to work. When I, t- I was attending an art gallery, so I would dress up and with high heels and a beautiful dress or outfit and a hat, and I would take the cable car to work down the hill to that. Union Square and acted like I was the character in my own novel. Oh! And I loved it. I loved it. It's so funny you should say that because, you know, before I came here, I was working in Mayfair in London and I bought all my high heels with me. I remember putting them in a basket. <laughs> and uh, when I got here, I realised, well, they're never going to come out of the basket, are they? <laughs> no, the first thing I, I learned when I came here, you had to have waterproof shoes and you had to have house slippers so that when you went visiting in the winter, there was nothing but mud you would go to your friend's house and you would carry your house slippers so when you went inside, you'd take your muddy boots off or your muddy shoes off. Or, and it was always like everybody was wearing these, um, these galoshes and then the... And mud then and the dog pantouf. hair. And mud and dog's hair. Yeah, God, it's like a far cry from my last life too. My flat was like a, a zen uh, haven, whereas it's a zen haven here, but it's close to nature. And so... Nature comes inside the house. It, oh, there's like a layer of leaves down here at any given moment. <laughs> I'm always sweeping leaves out of the house as they are coming in with the dog, coming in with me or whoever's here. Did you ever have that moment where you'd um, wondered why you'd moved here? 
I kept going away. I think that was my sense was uh, I, I would say to myself, I don't need to stay here. I can go. If there was a problem, if it wasn't sad, satisfactory, I could leave. There were a lot, a lot, first, I was living on a boat that was movable. I could go just take my home with me that way. I wasn't living in these buildings in the farmhouse at all. But I kept coming back. And finally, I realized after a very long trip that I made with the boat in the year 2001... I went up to Holland. I took the boat up north, and it was a sort of a six-month voyage going up there. And I wintered over, and then I came back. And it was on my way back as I left to came, you know, further down south and got to Toulouse, and then started coming on this canal and this part of the Lot et Garonne and this part of southwest France. I just felt like I'd come home. Mm. And then I knew I'm going to tie the ropes to the trees and stay here. And that, so that was only, you know, that was after living here for over 10 or 12 years or coming and going 10 or 12 years. And you kind of touched on a little bit before you were living in San Francisco and you were an art dealer. At that time, I was an art dealer. I was in my, um, my early 30s, mid and I decided I didn't want to work in the food world, which I had kind of grown up through my parents' restaurant. I, I cooked, I've always cooked. But I didn't want to do that as a living. I didn't want to wait tables. I didn't want to be a hostess anymore. I didn't want to do, um, you know, I'd been a maitre d'. I had done, a, so I've worked from sort of diners to fine dining. And I thought, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do something that's more creative. And I thought, I love art. And the first thing I opened up the paper in San Francisco to the want ad, or the ads for jobs, and it was alphabetical. And so one of the first ads was for art dealer. And I thought, oh, I love art. I could do that. I had no clue what it meant being an art dealer. I called up the number and they said, can you come in and meet us? And I said, yes, I'll come this afternoon. They hired me on the spot. I had still no clue what I was going to end up doing. But it's a very cutthroat business. And I had learned a lot about sales and big money and interesting characters and I ended up being the um, manager of this gallery for a while and probably the top-selling art dealer in the city for a couple of years. It's fascinating. You know, when every time we talk, I just, just discover something else that we have in common. Yeah. Um, because well, also, you were in that world yeah. of fine, yeah. fine interiors and yeah. beautiful objects. And but I also didn't go looking for it. So I remember getting a call... Um, I worked in interior design shops and I remember getting a call one day saying, Tamsin, we've been given your name. We need to talk to you about a possible job, but we want it's got to be private. Where can you go that's private? And I, I said, well, the only place is the broom cupboard and there's no light. <laughs> they were like, well, you better get in there quickly. And uh, so I also ended up working in high-end luxury interiors in Mayfair in London. Um, by by accident and um, I learned a lot about sales in that experience and intelligent sales which was much more interesting because it wasn't about a hard cold sell it was about investing your time in people and understanding what they loved and what brought them joy and what made them tick and trying to find things to match their lifestyle when they wanted it I had this idea as a young person, I would go visit these beautiful art galleries and and shops and um, well beyond any price I could ever afford at that time. And I just had to have the idea that people would just come in, look around if they liked something and they bought it and that was it. And you would sit behind a desk and say, can I help you? And they'd say, no, we're just looking. And then when they found something, they'd say, oh, we'd like to take this. I had no idea that you had to really explain to people what, perhaps why they liked something so that they could have confidence in their choice. Instead of making it a hard sale, it was the idea of educating somebody of what they were responding to. Because if somebody didn't like a painting, they were never going to buy it. And if you couldn't afford it, you couldn't buy it. But if you liked it and you could afford it, then why wouldn't you buy it? And that was sort of my sales 
idea that if I could afford it and I loved it, I'd take it home with me. So it was a matter of of giving people confidence in themselves of what they like. Like a lot of people say, I don't know anything about art, but I know what I like. And I, I think that sometimes people don't know what they like and they need a little assistance with that. Yeah, I could say the same, actually. I remember once going to a client's house and just thinking, gosh, they've spent an enormous amount of money here and nothing really um, makes sense to me because style doesn't cost anything. Uh, Understanding what you love and who you are and what taste is and what's important to you, really, you know, it's finding harmony, isn't it, in the things that are around you. If you love something, it's because you can... You've got an emotional connection to it. Yeah, I feel that I have that sense in general with this entire area. If you take it out of the context of a room or a house, what I love about being in France is that there is a a beautiful style about the entire countryside. And it's not Paris, which, you know, there are people who love Paris and they think all France is Paris. But the countryside, the real countryside, and this is a very deep farming, agricultural area. The beauty is, in a, for me, in a different way, but there's still something when man has lived or humans have lived on a piece of land for thousands and thousands of years. If you go back, back to the cave paintings near or very near here, some of the oldest prehistoric man living in this area, that every time somebody did something, it touched the earth, it changed it. And so for me, the beauty of this area is often the, the way the, the, the fields are tended or the reason orchard is placed on that side of the hill to catch more sun so the fruit ripen better. You know, that's a, a nice intersection of nature and humanity mm. that I love. And I see it here because this has been a working um, fertile area for a thousand years in the way that we know civilization now. But an obvious, um, I suppose, natural evolution of your life, if you look at it from an outside, if you were an art dealer in, in, um, in the States, would have been to become an antique dealer that shipped back antiquities from France to the States, but that didn't happen. No, no, and I... Well, I've always had a, an... Um, a facility to use food as a means of communication, whether cooking for somebody or being the, the guest of somebody at a table and then being invited into a kitchen, which is really the heart of most homes, whether you're in deepest, darkest Africa or you're, you know, in the city somewhere in a you know, very chic apartment. And so for me, that was always like having... A contact with somebody's food culture was a way I could really communicate or get to know somebody very quickly. And so when this area... So by the time I arrived in France in my mid-30s, that was sort of like, well, what's there here? And then what was here was this incredible wealth of culinary culture that allowed me to dig in and become a part of it. Now I think I'm ingrained in this region's culinary culture as much as anybody else is who's local and I love it yeah I came here for such different reasons and yet my background is all around food as well because I remember the first time we met sitting in your kitchen and there were hams hanging and you said to me oh excuse the hams and I was like Kate my my dad, my grandfather, my great-grandfather were all butchers. And yeah, I know. It's so amazing because, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you're a vegetarian and you're a yogi and you're going to be offended by all this. And I was like, no, not at all. No, it was kind of, it was kind of comforting in a strange way because I remember I started working in the butcher shop when I was 13 and my dad gave me, as one of my jobs on a Saturday, I had to take the boiled hams out of the pot skin them with my thumb, which always made me wretch, <laughs> and then roll them in breadcrumbs and put them on the counter. And so to see hang, hams hanging was, you know, it was part of my childhood, all of that. So I felt quite comfortable. And I, I in some ways, I kind of didn't really realise, you know, when I came here that I would be like a, 
that I would be so connected to the food and the land because I came here really by accident uh, to turn a house that my mum had left me and my sister into a well-being place. And so I was cooking vegetarian food. There was no connection whatsoever to the cultural identity of France or um, the typical dishes of the region. You know, here it's dark, foie gras, cassoulet, all the, all the great things that you cook um, and teach others to cook. I was not remotely interested in. So in, in some ways, I've learned about the region through you. Well, what's interesting is that when you think about it, it's like, yeah, we might look at foie gras, we might look at some of the, those like charcuterie and the very classic truffles and things like that. But the basis really of the farm cooking here or the farmhouse cooking are these fields of cauliflower, fields of carrots and beets and th- they're just like normal, you know, healthy great vegetables and fruit being grown and grains growing all over this region. So over time and certainly through um, kind of convoluted reasons why people create more uh, kind of elaborate cuisine, the basic is still that the carrots that come out of the ground are enough that they're so delicious. So your cooking and introducing people to a different style of cooking still has, works with the best products. And that is what is very special about being here too. Yeah, I think I've learned so much though from the simplicity of the approach to food and living here. In some ways, it's probably, well, it's definitely informed my self-practice of yoga and meditation and the way I live in a way that I could never really have imagined has almost made my practice actually well you've made your practice to suit you living here and in the not just in the area but in your own home and creating and creating a home here I don't I was not connected you know I remember thinking before because I've always loved food as well I've always worked in interior shops with a kitchen where cooking and hosting people has always been part of Um, everything that I've done and before that I made ceramics and tableware and it was all around the table and coming together and gathering so for me to bring people together around food has been a kind of central path and to teach yoga is not really that different to interior design because you're taking care of the home within in the same way that you do with your with your interior environment but I think here what I've really um gained is that sense of connection to the seasons I never really understood that before oh I absolutely that was for me probably the biggest lessons here because a I grew up in very different climate I was born and raised in Hawaii and Southern California when I was very young Arizona so the seasonal world a four season world did not exist in the same way And I didn't live it until I came here. And then it was like, oh, no, you can't buy that now. It's out of season. Or, you know, you go looking for something and, you know, the asparagus are finished and you won't see them until next year. And it took a while to get into that rhythm. But the seasons are so structured here in a very gentle way. We don't have heavy, hard winters. We do have hot summers, but it's very short All the seasons are like four seasons, three months long, exactly like they're supposed to be. And and you just get into this rhythm, like do this now because it's going to change in the next few weeks or next few months. And I it it's I resisted it initially because I well it takes me longer to get into something maybe. And by the time I was just sort of understanding winter food, spring was happening and I had to abandon that and go into the next bit. But now it's sort of like, you know, jumping rope and the rope's going around and you can't quite get in. And now I feel like I anticipate what's coming next in a nice way. And I realize like, well, I better do this now. I'm going to make these soups now because this is the season to do that. And then when spring comes, we're going to have a very different approach to the table. I can relate to that so much. 
in the early days, I remember creating um, recipes for all the retreats and then getting to the farming sh- farm shop <laughs> none of the ingredients is available. Yeah. And you just can't get clever. No, and I, you know, I, I would tell people, don't start with a recipe, go shopping first. Yeah. Because for sure, if you say you're going to do X, Y, Z, you get there, you're not going to find it. And, um, and I think that beyond food, there are other things that, uh, that allow us to clue into the, what the seasonal life is like, whether the days are shorter now. Um, and so I kind of tend my morning differently than in the summer when I know I have 12 or four, 15 hours of daylight ahead of me. Now I know I don't. So I do the things in the morning that, I'm very, that are important for me to do with light. Um, I also think that the sense of people's people's activities here in France, people do live very seasonally, so they may not do things much in the winter, but in the summer they're going to visit and go out and you know do go do all the things that seem like I would spread it out over the year, but it gets jammed into like six weeks in the summer, yeah. and so I. I, I I like now that I've lived here long enough and I'm of that certain age where I have a little bit of perspective back that I can anticipate what's going to come next and enjoy that anticipation as well as the actual process when it happens. And you've been here 30 years? Over 30 years, yeah. I arrived, I arrived for the first time here in 1988 and um, I went on. I was just traveling on the boat and turned around and went back. And then um, very shortly realized that this side of the canal, this side of Toulouse in the southwest, was not very touristically developed at all. And from the boat point of view, there was no boats. There were still working boats here, which was great. Big, huge steel shoeboxes called peniches that were full of corn or grain or some crazy thing. And... I like being part of that working area. And as I mentioned, this is working farm area. So I very quickly, I found this property at the end of 1989. So just within a year, it was sort of haphazard. Somebody told me about it and bought it right away in the next year. Um, and then I've, although I've, I traveled, I would always come back here and then made that decision to just stay. Interesting, isn't it, how this place changes you? Oh, there's always been something here, and there's certain spots, don't you? I don't know if you feel this. I think, well, when we first really met at the Paravis, at the convent, where we take our Dame de Paradis from, that place has some energy that's amazing, and I don't know, it's very odd that's never been restored, that it's still in ruin, there's something there. But there are places, and this place where we're sitting in my home at Kamant, it has that, there has an energy here that I've always responded to. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there are places, there are villages and spots in the countryside or towns where you just turn a corner and all of a sudden you feel like, oh, I belong here. Yeah. yeah. I didn't, you know, I knew why I was coming to this area in France. It's not somewhere I would have ever have chosen. Um, I can't imagine buying a house in the middle of nowhere. My mum chose it, so I, I just followed a path. But, but you, cho- you chose to keep it. I chose to keep it for, for very similar reasons. I think when I came here, I had lots of clever ideas and had a feeling to be here, for sure, for lots of reasons that I was really craving a sense of community. I think because I grew up uh, as the butcher's daughter, you know, in a, in a town outside of London. It was really like a village. You know, my dad, my grandfather, they knew everybody. And so when, any, when anyone would come into my dad's shop, he would tell them what, what was the best cut of meat to eat for Sunday lunch, how to cook it, how to prepare it. My mum was a fabulous cook, so he would always bring in recipes and I'd lived, um, I left where I grew up outside of London when I was 20 and I moved to Brighton. And Brighton was a bustling town and loads going on. 
But I think I really missed that. I mean, there's pockets, obviously, of Brighton that are very, very village-like, but I was really craving being part of that same anchored community, and I really hoped that I would find it in France. And the experience of being here has kind of taken me from being busy and with ideas, um, thinking that I could control everything. <laughs> 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 to realising that nature leads everything here and that my sense of connection to myself has really come from being in France and slowing down because, like you say, when you go and you want to buy a cauliflower and you've missed the season, it's like, no, there's, what do you mean there's no cauliflower? <laughs> no, there's no cauliflower. It's done. And so whether you like it or not, you can't have your own way. You, you, nature is totally in charge here and everybody goes along with nature. And so I think that rhythm enabled me to hear things in a different way and then to seek connections that were a lot more meaningful and deeper. So your house is in a, a village up on the hill above the, the main village but with a, within a community of houses all around you. And do you feel like you are in that village now, that you have a place? Yeah, People like, know who you are. Yeah. You're not the butcher's daughter, but they know who you are. You're Tamsin, who does this, who's English, who comes from... Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I think it's taken 10 years to realise that um, the village life is probably more important to me than the house. I would really, it would take an awful lot now to displace me because it takes a lot to win the hearts. Of the, I mean, I remember someone always saying to me, French culture is so different to the British in that people are not necessarily instantly open. They're much more formal and guarded. But once you've got your foot in the door, you're in for life. Yes, yes. And I think it's taken me 10, 10 years, really, these last two, three years, and especially since my spoken French has got to the point where I can now have a laugh and a joke and I'm, no one's scared to invite me round for an apero, um, that my neighbours and my family. Yeah, I think that's a lot. It's a lovely thing because I think a lot of people that come to France or go to a foreign country to live... Um, and in this day and age, it used to be we would talk about expats being all retired, but now there are many people that live and work remotely or the digital nomads or what, or they're just trying their wings to live in another culture. But until you get inside, you're just always being the voyeur in a way. And it's hard to get inside if you don't have the language. Yeah, and it's such a different community because both you and I have communities online that are connected to our way of work and that's been nourishing me for a long time. I'm so um, grateful to the community that I've been able to connect and create through my work and it's quite a different community to the one that I'm surrounded by in my village. They know exactly what I do and they love it and they support me um, but they, they are very different it's kind of like two different worlds that meet in the middle that's a good way that's a good way to put it because I always thought I did so much with tourism you know on the barge and then cooking classes or tours people coming into this area from outside that I would then you know I would open the doors here for people then then they would leave and I would kind of go Whoosh. then I would see Monsieur Dupuis thumping down the road with his canes and say bonjour and adi shots and just so it was like a, two different ways of communicating but but important to have both of those because just having just working with english-speaking tourists would not have been satisfying over the years i needed to have my my neighbors my you know when i say my neighbors it's like the the literal neighbors that are along this little road plus you know, the market vendors that I buy from or the farmers or the people in the shops, the pharmacy, the women in the pharmacy are so amazing. They, they become a part of your life. How are you? Sit down, come in, have you been well? 
you know, they all always see people when they're sick, right? So they, it, they have a way of, of including you in their bigger community, not maybe their family life, but in the bigger community. It's funny, I remember when we first walked around the um, convent of Paravi, which is this 15th century... Older, 11th and 12th century. Ruin. Now owned by a, um, an apple producer. producer. But oh, maybe he could be a sponsor. They could be a sponsor for <laughs> we us. just eat great <laughs> loads of apples. But at that point, we were both so inspired by the thought of this community of very important women and thinking, you know, here we are, two women working on our own, uh, creating our communities around us, and how could we reach more women who are also um, craving community, maybe living in isolated worlds, maybe wanting a slice of our life in the city. And we got so excited about it, and then it kind of petered into the background. Well, we both got very busy. I know at that point I was... You know, life just went in a different direction for me, and I got very, very busy. And I would always think of this idea of a secret society of women coming together as the thing I would do when it was quiet in the winter. And then there was a point where it just was never quiet in the winter anymore. We just were always working all the time online. Yeah. And that, you know, even though I, I do love having that, as you said earlier, that bigger community, like global community through Instagram or Facebook or whatever, or through the newsletters that we write, or that I love having that, that I can have a conversation with somebody in Western Australia when I wake up in the morning. But I also miss kind of how it got so quiet here in January and February, and that it just gave you a moment to pull in together um, and that was where I felt I would like to talk with other people, specifically other women who were like me, like you, trying to create a life in this isolation. Mm. And the, the, the idea that there was this group of fairly well-to-do women, because you to enter a convent, you had to have a dowry, like getting married, and these were usually noble families' daughters that were being sequestered and cloistered away for their safety as much as everything. But their financial wealth was also part of, of the community, supporting the community that they were living in. Mm. And so the idea that you could kind of band together to make something more than you yourself would do was also one of the ideas for me that this... This idea of, uh, of the dam du paradis uh, would be a, a way that we could band together to do more than what we would do on our own. Yeah. Invite in the unexpected. Yeah. And make connections with people at a place that they could also contribute to. And I think that our... Um, Technical world now allows us to do that through all kinds of open communication, online chats and rooms and live question and answers and things like that. One of the things I remember feeling when I left, so I left uh, employed work in 2008, and one of the things I felt at the time was that I didn't want to be anyone else's brand anymore. I wanted to know who I really was and... What did that mean when I wasn't fitting into someone else's constraints? And so by coming here, there was no brand. And I remember the very beginnings of thinking, oh, I've got this idea and this vision, um, but there's nothing in front of me. And I had to kind of construct what Little French Retreat was from, you know, normally when you start a job, you've got a defined outline of what your role is going to be and you have your clients or your, your guest list, and then you've got your trajectory for the, for the calendar year. And I remember just sitting at the computer and thinking, how am I going to find anyone? <laughs> uh, but I love, I love when you, you called what you were doing Little French Retreat because it was sort of a modesty about it. It's not 
this big blaring, look at me, this is what I'm doing over here, but a, like a gentle invitation to come and explore what you were doing in the place you were doing that. And it also fits this area. It fits the sort of soft scale of things. Well, the irony of setting up on your own and wanting to be on your own for me is that I've actually never really liked being the front person. (laughs) (laughs) I loved being a manager because I, I didn't ever intend on managing people. I totally fell into it by accident because I quit one job and a friend invited me to take her role. Um, Thankfully, Harvey, the regional director, put his faith in me. Um, But I, you know, when I first came here, I really wanted my own project, but I just remember feeling so painfully uncomfortable about how I was going to be the voice of Little French Retreat because I felt apprehensive about standing up in front of people. So... I think I had my light bulb moment about that sense of voice and who I was as a writer because that was one of the things I was I've always tried to do is you know to be able to say to say I'm a writer or to write and be able to make that have some real meaning. But I went to a, a, a workshop conference one weekend when I was in the states and. Part of the unscheduled part of work of all the workshops and the seminars was time after dinner in the lounge at the hotel where we all stayed in and drinks. And I bought, brought a bottle of Armagnac, of course, to share. And everybody is starting to read from their works, their published works or the works they were trying to get published. And I had just enough Armagnac and I felt brave enough to do that. And I had my book, first book I had published. And so I started to read the introduction. And then I realized how quiet it had gotten in this room, in this lounge we were in. And people were really listening to what I was saying. And so I I stopped because I thought like, okay, that's enough. And they said, go on, go on. I went, no, no, that's enough. And I read, but what I wanted to just hold on to was my voice, my story was not like anybody else's. And I was hearing it for the first time by saying it out loud to my peers and to other people. And so that gave me, even when I came back here and started working, teaching and taking this to a a bigger scale in a way that I had a story and I had a voice that was unlike anybody else's. And I didn't have to worry now about creating that. It already existed. And I think that once you find that, a place for that to to grow in, then you acknowledge it and it grows it, then that's when the exciting stuff happens. Absolutely. It's like the, the confidence to take the persona off and be the real person that you really are. Well, there's a, that's always a challenge, isn't it? You know, and I'm always grateful for your mentoring and coaching because I feel like it's very easy to try to give people what they they want. Or I'm always wanting to, what, what do you think that they would want? And I'll give that. And you always remind me to be myself, to just do what I, write what I want to say, do what I want to do. And that's what will make, it'll ring more tr- Truly, and it'll be more valuable. Yeah. And if we can't be ourselves. Oh my God, if you can't do that at 70 years old. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I first came here, um, I used Workaway for help because I didn't have a budget to get things done. And I, the first helper that came to me was a Buddhist monk. He'd been a Buddhist monk, um, Adam. And he responded to my message to say I need to build a website. And he said, I take six weeks off every winter. Normally, I'm away in Nepal. I'm not going. Can I come and help you build your website? And he was such a great person to spend a couple of weeks with because it was really early on staying here and I hadn't really made those connections. It's like I knew what I was doing and I was finding it really difficult to find inroads. And he said to me, you can make your society wherever you are in the world. 
That's lovely. It was yeah. so lovely. And it made me realise I can do things how I want to do things. I can be who I want to be. And I can take the time um, that it's going to take. And it means being probably a lot more aware of not just jumping on anything. There were certain occasions where I would go out and meet with groups. And I kind of felt like, this isn't me. This doesn't feel right. And it took time. You know, our friendship always enjoyed our conversations. And little by little, community started to grow around. And now it's almost like pulling all of those things together completes the whole picture of how to build a life that you really want to be the person that you really are with the people that you really love around you. I think sometimes people say, you know, they'll say how brave you are or, um, you know, I look at you sometimes and think like, oh, that's amazing that you, you know, you're doing that. You're, you're, you're just managing to make this all work for you the way you want to live. And that encouragement of being with other people, meeting them. Um, we, we have sort of this extended community within our local area around where we live now, but also I feel it's far more far-reaching across France and Italy and Spain as I um, reach out through, through the internet, through Instagram or whatever, that I've made real... Com- real um, friends and, and uh, connections with people who are for a little bit further afield. And to pull people into that circle is, I think, part of the goal of what I'm doing now, which has changed. I uh, changed the way I'm working, but I still really value that connection of a circle of people to, that I can communicate with. What does it take for you to be courageous? What gives you... Oh, gosh. I feel that the things that I don't think about too much are the ones that usually kind of impress people. Like, oh, you were so brave to do that. I didn't even think about why. I just was felt compelled to do something. Or, or I've always responded to a dare. So if somebody kind of implied, not directly, but they say you could never do that. It would be, oh yeah, I'll show you. And that's always been my internal motive to do a lot of the things that I've done in life. Like, I'll show you, I can drive my boat when I'm 50 across Europe by myself. What was I thinking? (laughs) So I feel that what it takes is a sort of outside energy of people kind of looking at me askance and saying, well, she can't do that. And then I'm saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I can. But, but the, in some ways, that's courage, isn't it? Courage means of the heart. It's like yeah. you listen to your heart and go for it. Yeah, because if I really want to, I know that usually the things I really, really want to do, nobody else wants to do. Or won't, they won't let me. Or, you know, initially when I was younger, I thought I needed permission from people. But I have to say, uh, now that I am an on the elder side of the scale, I don't have to ask anybody for permission. I know that if I think it's a good idea to pack my bags and go away for three months somewhere and do something, then I should do it. I don't have to ask somebody's permission to do that. Or conversely, like I'm feeling now, I feel very grounded and very happy to be home and not traveling. Oh, do I love to travel? Right now, I really feel this is the place I'm supposed to be. And so I'm giving myself permission and challenging myself to do that, to stay kind of rooted and see where that leads me this year. And to be integral. It's like uh, each and everybody's life journey has a unique blueprint. It's like there's not one mold that fits everybody. No, and I think that you have to also realize that the ideas that you have at a certain stage change, and you obviously one has to adapt to changes, but there's a point of sometimes you just have to let go and say, oh, I don't need to do that anymore, or I don't want to, or I don't need to, and look at, and just let go. Letting go feels very freeing and very light. 
I was always so curious in the beginning when I came here because I was quite aware that I was coming here for a reason. I felt really guided to come here, but that that might not be the reason why I stay. And that actually the true reason for being here might be something that I don't even know about yet. Um, so I was open and I think that's probably what's kept me here in that so many of the things that I thought would happen never came about. In the beginning, I had this kind of fixed vision, really, of how I was going to set the house up. And quite quickly, I realised that none of it was possible. And there was a little bit of disappointment within me thinking, oh, my God, you know, I've, like, jumped hook, line and sink, and I'm here, and I've invested in the house, and I've sold my flat in Brighton, and I can't do anything I thought I was going to do. In, but it was too late. Mm. <laughs> and so I had to kind of do that 360 of, like, well, that's okay. How am I going to do it differently that's going to work with the things that I've got? And I think that's kept me going. That's always been the approach that I've had here. It's don't worry about um, an idea. Try and get in touch with what your heart's saying now. So is there a part of living here in France specifically and specifically in this rural part of France that feeds you, that gives you that um, encouragement to make the choices you make? Or could you do this anywhere? I think you can do this anywhere. I just think I needed to be here. It's not, often people would write to me in the beginning and say, I really want to do what you're doing. How do I buy a house in France and set up a retreat venue? And my response was always the same. I never intended on doing this. It's something that was one step at a time. And I was craving the countryside and I was craving the quiet and I really wanted silence. I felt a bit like a fish out of water in, in London wasn't, it never really felt like my life. You know, I'd put on high heels and I'd put on a suit and I'd forget to paint my nails and I'd forget to put makeup on. And I'm just like, oh God, you know, we were talking about this the other day. We, we're kind of in our Birkenstocks and Crocs. <laughs> <laughs> but with a lipstick. You, with always, lipstick yeah. you always have to have... Well, actually, I learned... That was one of the things I learned in France because I, have, I grew up a bit in the hippie era where, you know, you, you didn't shave your legs or your underarms and you... You know, God forbid, wearing makeup and, you know, long hair and all of the accoutrements, heavy beads and things like that. So um, when I, you know, I mellowed over the years and I, you know, as I said, when I lived in San Francisco, I used to dress up and wear high heels and hats and I loved all that. But I'm more of a natural girl, if we could say that. But when I came to France, I realized that if I didn't put some lipstick on when I went to the bank or the post office or wherever I had business to do, I was not going to be taken seriously because there is a sense of you put your best face on, literally. You put your nicer clothes on when you go out. And it's not for you. It's for a respectful thing to who you're meeting that you've prepared to meet with them. It's like making a reservation in a restaurant. They may not be busy, but isn't it nice to know that they know you're going to come through the door with two people or eight people? And so for me, that lipstick moment, which came very late in my life, just in time for menopause, really, was was funny because now it's like a whole new world. It's like I have a lipstick in every pocket of my my ratty old polar fleece vest or my bag so that if I'm out and I've forgotten, I can quickly do quick slight swipe and go from there. I've always loved that about going to the market at the weekends, that you dress up for the market. Yes, yeah. And that's when you bump into everybody. And I think the lipstick moment came for me after lockdown, after confinement, because after three months in the house... The first lockdown, the very first thing I went and bought was a lipstick. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember putting it on and my ex was like, well, why are you wearing lipstick? Have you got a farmer on the hill that you're going to meet? And it's like, no, I just want to feel good. I I would go to the market for years. I would go to the market, you know, the outdoor farmer's market every week. And there are many of them, you know, within shooting distance or if I was traveling on the boats, it'd be a different one, you know, almost every time I went. 
And I would just run out and do, get what I needed. And, you know, I, I tended to, you, you know, who has the best produce or who you like to have a communication with. But I would just go out and whatever I was wearing, I was working on the boat. I'd have, you know, grease on my elbows. I'd, you know, just throw on my, my Crocs and I'd go. Then, like you, I had this sense of, I should look better than this. Nobody here it looks like this. Even if you go to the hardware store, the equivalent of the Home Depot, people dress up. They don't go in their work clothes like it's an emergency every day. So I started to take a bit more care about my uh, going out to clothes or going out to styling when I would meet somebody. Sometimes it's just to throw a scarf on. And, you're, I think and that's, that's enough. But but there is a sense of, you, you know, you live this country life, so let's get the mud off the bottom of the shoes and put the lipstick on and then go out and be prepared to talk to people. That is one of the things that I've really appreciated being here because before, when I first came, I was immersed in the world of yoga. I spent time in ashrams in India and I kind of took that as a jacket, but it, it never quite fit because obviously I didn't grow up in India. Um, I'm not Hindu and I appreciate all of the practices and the rituals, but actually life here is all about rituals and intention and they are totally connected to nature. And so that's when my two worlds started to make a lot of sense to me. I wasn't compartmentalizing yoga and reality or whatever reality is, but you, a practice from India and living in the southwest of France, it's suddenly rituals are putting on your lipstick, getting your best clothes on to go to the market, or making your morning cup of coffee and sitting outside on the terrace listening to the birds in the morning um, and being connected to your life and your environment and not trying to be something that you're not or not taking a blueprint that doesn't belong to you um, being really intentional. Sometime when we talk again, I would like to talk about that position of being um, what I, I consider to be an inside outsider. So you're inside, you live with inside this culture or a culture, but you live it as the outsider. So you're seeing it, doing it and seeing it at the same time but you see it through your own identity and then you take actions of the culture that you're in. And that can apply to these little rituals like having aperitifs with your neighbours or going to the market or cooking or taking the time to acknowledge the change of the seasons, not working between 12 and 2, going for Sunday lunch, you know, all, all, the, all the different things that make that people who dream about coming to France kind of think about, but how do we actually interact with them? I think it'll be an interesting thing to talk about. How can we invite it into our own life, even if we don't live in yes, France? Yes, and if you don't live in France, you can do these things. Yeah. It's what I call finding France. You find France wherever you want to live. And the art of simple living. Here it is part of every day. Nothing's too clever. Nothing's too um, com- it, nothing's complicated. No, I think there is an uh, there is a natural flow in people's lives here. That are not to romanticize everything. People get up, work really hard, stop, have lunch, have a break because they've been working really hard, and then you know take their weekends off because you can't work every day, every day, every day, and so the idea of the, some of the rituals and some of the romance of what people think about living in the French countryside is actually very pragmatic and practical. And it's one of the things I love. I would say the same. The simplicity of turning over the same field. And every year that same field looks different because it's got a different crop on it. Colour changes. Right. Um, I, I used to take five different paths to go to work because I was so bored of taking the same path. I take the same path every day here and it changes every season. Yeah, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. Being connected 
to your environment, I think, is so essential, isn't it? How can we find ways to be in connection to who we are, where we are, and who we're sharing it with? So that we can work and live in, in harmony, really. It's like, I know that's what I love about what I do. It doesn't feel like I go to work. No, I, you know, I think I understand a sense of work that's very different now than when I uh, first approached it, that I was creating something and I was doing something to a certain expectation, my own expectations or other people's, certainly. I wanted to get good reviews or good feedback, so I continued to have my business. But now I think of, my, of the work is the part that I absolutely have to do, that I have to um, create. I can't let it just, I can't ignore it. It's the important thing in my life. And that is a more creative approach to it. So I hope that, that I can still make a living doing it, what I do, but I'm approaching it from a very different angle. Not with the, what other people's expectations are, but what I, I feel that I have to do that what really needs to be expressed by, by my own work. And that's something I feel that is really valued in why we wanted to do this podcast, because it's not just us who wants to understand how to work and live in harmony. Um, how to make those decisions that are that have meaning so that you can do the things that you really want to do in your life without fear. Um, to literally push yourself over the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> Leap across both and have, feet. Have a, hopefully have a soft landing. But I think we will. We'll talk, let's talk about food. Let's talk about art. Let's talk about homes. Let's talk about nature. Let's talk about our dogs and all the, the friends and the neighbours and all the things that are woven to create this sort of fabric of living here and what it's like to live in, in, in the southwest of France, in rural France, and invite people to come in to, with us to explore so that they can also look at their lives in that way and say, how can I create that kind of excitement and energy that I think I would have if I lived in France? How do I do that at home? Yeah, absolutely. How can we bring our dreams and um, the work that's waiting for us? You know, a friend used to say, oh, Kate, it's like a dream come true. And she'd look at the house here and I, all I would look and see the problems and the things that had to be done. And then I said, no, it's not a dream, it's a plan. And the plan is coming true, that I'm working to make the plan work. If I just sat on a chair and dreamed it, nothing would happen. But if I made a plan and then I saw it happening. So I, would, I just sort of took that energy when she'd say, oh, it's like a dream come true. And I'd say, no, it's not. It's a really fucking good plan. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I always think, is one of the things that I love about our approaches because I'm always trying to undo the plan. <laughs> I let it just flow. <laughs> yeah. And so there's like, where do we find ourselves in between that we can bring our dreams to life and not get fixated on a plan? Because that yes. can cause so much suffering. And give ourselves permission to really be us. It's such a fine line. It's like a tightrope, isn't it? It's like, how do you balance all these different energies of intention and creation because you and I are creative people we start with one thing but you've got to let go to enable it to become what it really wants to well, be well I have to have the caveat is that I always have a plan but it's very flexible and I'm willing to let it change course very easily because, but what gives me the motivation to start I suppose is what is important and what happens along the way is a more natural growth but so many people never sort of get off the couch. They never get really follow what they want to do. It's what they want to do, not what I want them to do. And I think that that's, the, that's where the courage comes. It's like, 
having the confidence in your own ideas. And, and maybe just would start with one. Such a one good point. small thing. Such a, such a great way to conclude our first podcast in taking people from the couch to their first idea. Oh, that's great. Well, listen, it would be great if we had a way. Let's have open up the chat room on the Substack newsletter and have people can write what their one idea is that they want to do. I have one idea for this year. I'm about 20. But I have one I really want to do. I'm sure you have one. I'll write it down. Yeah, I'll put it on the, I'll start it, I'll open the chat. I'll put that down and you can put yours in and then let's see what everybody's ideas are. We'll start our year with an intention. From the couch. (laughs) To... (laughs) Outer space. To outer space. <laughs> thanks. I love chatting with you, Kate. I love it, Tams, and thanks so much, and I look forward to doing this again soon. Yeah. Speak soon. Take care. Ciao. Bye.